The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In a few moments, you'll hear from Pat Davis of the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers on the effectiveness of the impact of rent controls on the Irish market. Later in the show, Colin Keener will explain the links that a company in Sandyford, County Dublin, has with one of Vladimir Putin's closest associates. But I'm starting with rent controls. The SRI this week published a report on their effectiveness between 2017 and 2020. It found that about one third of landlords had pushed through price increases above the allowed limit of 4%, and that prices would have risen by 2% if the controls hadn't been in place. For a view on its findings, I spoke with Pat Davitt of the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers, and I began by asking him why so many landlords were able to push through increases above the cap. Um, I think, Kieran, it's very unfortunate when you look at the ESRI report that the facts, that the full facts that you'd expect from a report like it aren't there. Um, like to say it's possible that there's a third of the landlords or the rents gone over the 4%. Like, it's fine, but is there evidence for it? And there doesn't seem to be evidence for it. And if there is evidence for it, then how would you back up the evidence by looking at it? You would have to examine as to where the, where the third is coming from, uh, why the third is in there. And in actual fact, if that third is legitimate or not legitimate, because it is quite possible that... Uh, those increases are legitimate. I, I don't know. And we've been trying to get this information for quite a while from uh, the RTB. And that information, as well as many, many, many more and much more information, isn't available. Um, so that it, it it all begs the question as to what sort of reporting has been kept. Yeah, now, I mean, let's not cast any aspersions on the ESRI. Um, they're not here to defend themselves. And I'm, I'm sure they've looked very closely at all of the data uh, available to them, and they do point out that there are gaps in in the figures that they have, um, so they can't be definitive on this. But I mean, what what needs to be done? Why is there a gap in in the data? In your view, you're somebody who who would be close to this. What what needs to be done? What kind of data needs to be gathered, and by whom? Well, I think first of all, I wasn't passing any expressions on the ESRI because they have only written the data. That's correct, but they have pointed out that this is that this data is missing or that they haven't got it. Uh, what needs to be done is that there needs to be exact data kept. Like a simple thing that uh, uh, in the marketplace that isn't there at the moment is an average rent. And uh, the report talks about rents and it talks about the, the, the average rent. And all of the uh, peer-to-be reports come out and they talk about the, the rent over the past three months. But like if we had an average rent in Ireland of the total rental agreements that the RTB have, we would know that instead of talking about probably a 2,000 rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Dublin, the average rent is probably closer to maybe thirteen or 1,400. And many tenants are paying below that. Even the many tenants or some tenants are paying above it. And that's what's given us the rent at the moment. But that's only a cap on just the last couple of months. Whereas if that information was available, we'd be able to look at all of the tenancies that they uh, RTB have and we'd be able to come up with a figure, an average figure for every type of property that's rented in the country in the RPSZs, out of the RPSZs new properties uh, that have been rented and properties that have been left uh, vacant for two years so as the rent could be increased so uh, you know I don't know why the figures, why they aren't there being quite honest because every tenancy has to be registered so it's very difficult to understand why they're not there 
Now, I know that the RTB are saying that when they do the uh, renewal, the yearly renewal, that those figures will all come to light. But if you increase the rent or do anything with it, you're supposed to send in a note to the RTB to tell them that you have increased the rent. So have they not been collecting this information or why haven't they been? I I don't know that. I, I can't tell you. Yeah, you're you're referencing there the fact that tenancies now have to be have to be uh, updated on a, on an annual basis um, with the board, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. From the fourth of April, they have to be registered on an annual basis. Yeah. And I suppose the flip side of that is that a lot of small landlords are saying that it's uh, you know it's quite bureaucratic. It puts a, a burden on them, and we know that it's, um, a, a number of small landlords are, are leaving the market in spite of the saucy rents that seem to be available in the market. Well. Uh, landlords are leaving the market, there's no doubt about that, but when the RPZs came in in 2016 or 15, whenever it was now, uh, like at that particular time, they came in at any rent that you were renting your apartment at or your house at or whatever sort of property you had at once you were inside an RPZ. And if you're outside that RPZ, you could increase your rent every two years. And hence, some of the report, when you look at it, it, it seems to relate to things like that because in some cases, like outside of an RPZ, if the rents weren't increased for two years, it causes you to believe that those rents weren't actually going up at all, where they come in at the end of two-year period and they can go up by huge figures. So that if you had a property, we'll say, outside the RPZ and you didn't rent it or you didn't uh, change the rent only two years ago, uh, you could, if that was, we'll say, at €1,200, Euros, that rent could go up to fifteen, sixteen, or €1,700 Euros in the next two years. So that uh, inside and outside of the RPZ makes an awful lot of difference. But that, because the rent wasn't allowed to be charged at market rent and only charged at the rent that the landlord was charging the tenant, has caused a huge problem inside of the RPZs and a very unfair treatment for lots of landlords. And hence, a lot of landlords are feeling that if they can't get the proper rent for their apartment, they're going to have to sell it. And a lot of landlords are doing that. And we can see them moving out of the market at the moment. Pat, the SRI said that the rent controls, in their view, had worked in limiting inflation. And that if if they hadn't have been there, prices would have been 2% higher. Now, 2% doesn't seem like an awful lot, actually, uh, in a market that seems to be running away at times. But nonetheless, um, that money is better in the pocket of the tenant, I guess, than, than the landlord. But what, what's your view on that? In your opinion, um, have the rent controls actually worked? Um, I'd say the rent controls have worked to a certain degree. There's no doubt about that because they have probably stopped uh, the market running on and running on, uh, you know, out to, to no control whatsoever. I think they have. I think 2% is a very small figure. Even though in the marketplace, I'm not sure that that actual 2% is for the first couple of years that the rents were on the base of 4% or not. Um, it's not actually that clear from when you read it. But uh, if it's for the total term, 2% is very, very small. Because as you know, uh, the rent increases were allowed at 4% and now they're allowed at 2% or inflation, whichever, the, whichever way it, it works out. So even at 2% there, it's very difficult to even imagine like 2% is countable in like in some of the higher rents, yes, but in some of the smaller rents, like 2% wouldn't be even, it'd be very difficult to figure out even like a 2%, 2% could be the difference, you know, at any time in any rent. So like, you know, if the tenant was changed or is saved by 15 or 20%, you would imagine that that's what the figure would have been. So it seems like very, very small. And if it's only for that, what's the point in having rent controls at all, really? But if we didn't have them and when they have to when when we have to get rid of them they say the government says now that they're going to be here until 2024 and they're going to take them away then but um when that happens 
there's going to be so much uh, unequal rents inside of the property market, inside of the RPZs, that some rents could go up by 100%. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's very strange what's happening inside of the RPZ with the rents at the moment. Sorry, Pat, just to be clear, you think that when these controls, if they go in 2024... Um, and we could have a different government in 2024, let's face it, so who knows. But if they do go in 2024, you're saying that some rents could rise uh, by 100%. Now, I presume you're not talking about rents at the very top of the market. I presume you're talking about rents lower down. I'm talking about the rents lower down to rents to rise to the rents at the top of the market. Because many many tenants are paying in, in some places... Uh, two tenants in two different apartments. One could be paying a thousand euros a month, and another one could be paying two thousand euros a month. So, if there's no rent control there, and it's going to go, that person at a thousand euros a month is going to go up. The rent is going to go up to two thousand. The one at two thousand is not going to come down unless more property comes into the market. And while we talk about more property coming into the market, um, the, I suppose what rent controls don't take into consideration is that the other side of the market, the sales side of the market, is actually very buoyant as well. So that if landlords aren't happy with the rental that they're getting at the moment and they think there's too much hassle between registration of properties and RPD and regulation and all the times it has been uh, changed by the government, they can obviously sell their property and they're selling it into a rising market. So that that's another sort of scenario that needs to be looked at when we talk about rent controls. You know, what is left for landlords if they decide to, uh, you know, to sell their property? But one other point that should be looked at is the new properties at the moment. You can rent them at any figure. And the idea of, 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 of new properties coming into the market was there was going to be new properties there. But very interestingly, uh, the ERSI didn't look at how many extra properties are in the market because of these new properties coming in at any rent. And I would estimate that there are less properties today in the market than there were in 2015 or 16. And the reason being that many New properties have come to the market, but many, many landlords have left the market because of the unfair treatment. So even though what we are left with is a lot of new properties coming into the market at higher rents and a lot of the properties at the lower rents are actually gone and going because the landlords can't afford, they don't, can't afford to keep them and they can't afford to keep the condition of the properties up that's required to different standards because they don't have enough rent to do it. So like I, I'd say that if the ERSI looked at the amount of the new properties that are supposed to have bolstered the market, I'd say there would be, actually, I'd be very surprised if there's any more properties in the market to rent now than there was at that time. Um, so this new system uh, that's in place now, Pat, is going to cap the rent increases at uh, 2%. I presume that's 2, 2% per year. Um, what impact do you think that'll have on the market? Well, that's uh, in, I think, since last December, I think that came in at 2%. And again, uh, like if you're looking at it, that rents in the RPZ, some rents are properties are not rented at market rent or even near market rent because some landlords were actually happy with the tenants that they had and they weren't putting up their rents. So in some cases, uh, those properties were rented way, way below market rent. And those properties can only rise by 2%. But when you see properties coming into the market that have been left out of the market for two years, they can come in at any rent, that, uh, whatever rent is available to them. Um, or whatever rent they want to charge that they think they can charge in the marketplace. Or you see properties that the BERs have changed or the people have spent a lot of money on, or you see new properties in the marketplace, 2% to them is making an awful lot of difference. It's really increasing the rents on those properties as opposed to ones that are that actually need the rent increase because they're being rented at a lot 
below market rent. So that I think it's still going to have an effect for the higher rent payers. Yes, surely, because if you're paying 2000 a month, it means your rent is going up by 40 euros a month, uh, which is 500 euros a year. It's not an awful lot, but again, it's, it's, it's something like another utility bill that the price is going up. Whereas if your rent is only 1000 well, the rent is only going up by 25 euros, which is a very small amount. Um, but having said that, uh, I think it's, it's going to make a difference, certainly to the higher properties, but to the lower ones, I, I don't think it's going to make a great lot of difference to tenants who are paying it. Yeah, very expensive rents, all the same, Pat. Have you any magic solution to this perennial issue as to um, how we solve the, the rental crisis? Well, I think, first of all, we need to, tr- if we're going to stop landlords leaving the market, one-off landlords leaving the market or proper landlords who have a couple of properties, if we're going to stop them leaving the marketplace, we need to be able to allow them to charge the proper rent for their apartment that other that other landlords are getting. Now, that's going to cause, as I said, increases in the marketplace and huge increases in some cases. So that uh, I, I, the way the property, the way the, the way the property market is set up now, the way the RPs or Zs are set up, I don't think that that can ever happen. I, I can't see the rent controls going and the properties, the property rental being brought up to to market rent, um, unless something comes down at the top end and goes up at the bottom end. But if they don't, and all the rents go up to where the levels of the higher rents at the moment. Uh, the market is, it, I, I don't know where we're going to go. Nobody can afford to pay the market, pay the rent. So then the governments are going to be looking at, obviously, HAP and the uh, increase in HAP payments. Um, so that, like, I, I think, first of all, we have to level up the marketplace so as we can actually get into a situation where we, we know what, what's going on in the market at the moment. Like, it's very sort of, it's very sort of, uh, it's not natural what's happening right now with some tenants being able to, with paying A and other tenants paying B, or some landlords getting high rents and some landlords getting way lower rents. So it's not fair. And it's putting a lot of pressure on the landlords at the bottom of the market because they're getting it very difficult to maintain their, 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 their properties. And we found this in a very recent survey that that's actually happening. What about the supply side, uh, Pat? We were reporting the other day how Hammerson is uh, seeking to build 881 uh, apartments on the site of the old Dundrum shopping centre. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I, I can only assume these are going to be built to rent apartments. So in other words, an institutional investor will take them on and they will be rented out into the market. Now, you would imagine that if 881 units come on the market in Dundrum, that it would have a significant impact on, on rents uh, in that area. Or are there enough residents to fill these units at really toppy prices? I think that's going to have it's going to have a huge effect when they do come on the market. However long it's going to be before such time as they do come on the market, um, and the more that are built, obviously the better it is. But as you as you correctly say, the properties that are being built are coming in at the top end of the market. So like that is itself is causing a problem in the marketplace, and 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 furthermore it causes a problem that when you get uh, if you're we say outside of an RPZ but very close to one, and inside of the RPZ people can put up prices of new buildings. Then when you're outside the RPZ, I know this sounds very tricky, but when you're outside the RPZ, then you can look to that uh, new property for a comparable and you can rise the rent itself when your property comes due to rise in two years' time. So that like it's, they're causing other problems in the marketplace that actually probably the people who set it up originally didn't actually see these problems, but these, it is causing these problems and it's been causing them for years. And very little has been done about it, except on the regulation side, which is causing huge problems to landlords who have two and three properties. 
uh, and they're the ones that are leaving the marketplace. So like we're going to have a marketplace in the future of institutional landlords that rents are going to be decided, maybe not in Ireland at all, maybe other places. And uh, that in itself, with a lot of those institutional landlords with control of the market or very close to control of the market, is not a good place to be either. Yeah, lots of anomalies there. Um, I just wonder, what about scrapping the uh, rent controls altogether and just let the market decide? Well, I think if we if we do that for starters, I think what's going to happen is uh, the landlords at the low end of the market are going to put up their rents. I think that's what's, that's the first thing that's going to happen until they get to equalise the market out. Um, and after that, then, I think it's going to be probably a free-for-all that people can decide on if they want to buy or they want to rent an apartment at such a price, well, then well and good. Um, it, it may well it, it may well actually in the short term be very ba- very bad for the market, but in the longer term I'd say it's going to be good for the market. And um, well, I know a lot of people are talk were talking originally about rent freezes and all this that goes with it. But like uh, when the rent pressure zones came in, they didn't freeze the market. They freeze them by four percent, but they freeze it by four percent. That the higher ones could go up by four percent, the lower ones could go up by four uh, percent. Hence, that the higher prices were moving up much higher all the time. Um, so that I think if the RPSEDs went, yes, certainly the market would decide the price. And if more properties come into the market, uh, like what you're talking about in Dundrum, I think, yes, it's going to be good for the marketplace. But those prices are going to have to be have to come down from the top end of the market. Like there's not that many people I don't think out there that's prepared or that will pay and can pay that those high prices for the market. And if more property comes in the market to sell, I think a lot of those people that are renting uh, would probably buy properties. OK. Pat Abbott, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Kieran. We're going to take a short break now and in return. I'll be talking to Colm Keena about Russian links to a company in Sandyford, South Dublin. Back in a few moments. With increasing pressures, Ireland CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment, and importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com slash ie slash CEO. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Earlier this week, Colin Keena of the Irish Times revealed links between an Irish company located in Sandyford, South Dublin, with a former KGB spy who was also a close associate of Vladimir Putin. I began by asking Colm to outline Holy Town Limited's links with Russia. Yeah, well, first of all, this man, uh, Sergei Chemizov, he's uh, 69 years old and he served as a KGB spy in Dresden with uh, Vladimir Putin back in the old days, in the Soviet Union days. And they were mates and they worked together and they lived in the same apartment block. When the Soviet Union collapsed and the uh, Putin moved into politics. Chemizov worked in some of his administrations, had roles to do with uh, international trade and so on. And then uh, in 2007, Putin set up a conglomerate that uh, brought together a lot of military industrial type companies in um, Russia, state-owned enterprises, and put his friend uh, Chemizov in place as chief executive. It has an excess of 400,000 employees and uh, a turnover of, uh, of $20 billion or so, according to uh, in the latest year for which we have accounts. So he, he's, he's considered probably one of the closest of Putin's advisors and mates. And there have been stories in the past about his family having a lot of assets. This is the family of his second wife, 
who's a woman called Ekaterina Ignatova. So Chemizov and this uh, military industrial conglomerate, Rostec, were both sanctioned in 2014. And then last month, his wife, Ekaterina Ignatova, and her daughter, Anastasia, were both uh, put on the US sanctions list. Okay, so tell us about this Sandyford company. It's a company called Holy Town Limited, and it has an address in Beacon South Quarter, which would be familiar to anybody who knows that area of uh, South Dublin. What does it do? What assets does it hold? And who precisely owns it? Yeah, so it was set up in, in 98 as an Irish company, apparently resident in Gibraltar for the purposes of owning a single property in Spain, which I gather was a, a, a villa, not for letting purposes. Then in 2014, it changed hands and it was taken over by a company in the British Virgin Islands called Pennymar Holdings. Now, that same year, the assets owned by the Irish company jumped from about one and a half million euros to, to more than eight. So documents in the um, property registry in Spain show that Holytown, the Irish company, owns a villa in Estepona. It's a seafront villa with a nice big swimming pool in a gated community of uh, villas in a place called the New Golden Mile. And um, documents that have been leaked to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and shared by them with the Irish Times and other media partners show that Pennymar Holdings, the British Virgin Islands company, is owned by Anastasia Ignatova, that's Chemizov's stepdaughter, and her grandmother, who's a woman called Ludmila Rukavishnikova. So, uh, so they um, own the British Virgin Islands company that owns the uh, Irish company and have done so since 2014. I might add that the Spanish authorities last month seized a super yacht in, in Spain called the Valerie, which is a value of 110 million because of its association with Chemizov. And that super yacht is owned by a British Virgin Islands company, which the leaked ICIJ documents shows in turn owned by Anastasia Ignatova. So the relationship is similar to the relationship with Holy Town. Uh, Colin, did you make attempts to contact Holy Town? Uh, does Holy Town have any employees here? I did, yeah. It's an office suite, uh, the Cube's offices in the Beacon South Quarter. It's one of those places where businesses can rent a, rent an office and share, share the building with other people who are renting offices. There was nobody there when I called. The company that um, rents the offices called Trinity FS. It had a, an associated company, Kia Secretaries Limited, which was acting as secretary to the Irish company. Now, I sent email uh, a request for comments to those companies um, in late March. And then a week later, I received no response, but a week later, um, there was a filing sent to the CRO saying that Kia secretaries were no longer acting for um, Holy Town. And in fact, this morning, there's a new filing in the company's registration office showing that the uh, registered office has changed to, a, to an address in Fitzwilliam Square West in Dublin. Kia Secretaries and Trinity FS, they're uh, Irish companies and Irish businesses. Uh, and as far as I could work out, they're, they're associated with a, um, a man in the Czech Republic called Jurkova, who, who bought them uh, some years ago. His Stanislava Jurkova, he bought them a few years ago from a man called Paul Newman, who a company's filings shows have, has an address in Greystones, County Wicklow. But UK filings also show him as being sometimes a resident in Panama. 
Um, so he seems to be uh, involved in the company's registration and company service provision business. Then there's a company in um, Cyprus called FidjuServe, and they uh, supply services to Holy Town and they pr- supply uh, nominee directors. And they um, sent a statement saying to me that they, they're well aware of the sanctions laws and they obey all the relevant laws. As a company called Trident Trust out in um, the British Virgin Islands, which also supplies services to Holy Town, and it too said that it's aware of the relevant laws and is implementing them. Now, Colm, you make the point in your article that uh, Chemizov's stepdaughter, Anastasia Ignatova, and her mother um, were added to the US uh, sanctions list last month and dealing with Russian companies at the moment because of the war in Ukraine. It's quite toxic. So I'm just wondering, for Holy Town, is there any implication for the recent sanctions that have been imposed by the US and by the European Union on its operations? Well, um, I noticed that the, the company um, hasn't filed accounts in recent times. Its auditors, an Irish company, resigned um, in February of 2020. And as you can see now, um, the Irish secretarial company has stopped acting for the company and... Uh, so I think people are withdrawing from the company, even if if uh, you could argue the point that legally uh, it's permissible to continue to, to deal with the company. Perhaps people are doing it for, for ethical reasons. Um, certainly I'm aware that a lot of the law firms and, and um, uh, people involved in the aircraft leasing and so on are making decisions to cut ties not just in compliance with the law, but also just to cut ties with major Russian clients out of a sense of moral outrage with what's happening in uh, Ukraine. And then, as I understand it, if a person believes that they may, might be trading or doing dealings with uh, an entity that might be sanctioned or that might be covered by the sanctions, they're supposed to get in contact with the authorities, being the Department of Enterprise or the Central Bank or the Guardi, and... Um, they refer to it as a hit and um, then perhaps get legal advice. Colin, what would the advantage of the family of a former KGB spy um, setting up an entity in Sandyford? Well, it seems, as far as I can work it out, it seems the family wanted to buy the villa and then went in 2014. And when they went to do so, they, they just bought the company, that all, which was an Irish company, that already owned the villa and had done so since perhaps late 1990s. So I think it seems to me that that might have been the way they bought the villa. And then also additional assets might have then been added to the company. So we don't, it has assets of more than 8 million according to its latest filings. And I don't think the villa is worth 8 million. I might add that they they have another uh, big villa down in the Costa Brava that's owned directly in uh, the name of Anastasia Ignatova. And they have a number of British Virgin Islands companies that own different assets in different parts of the world. And the ICIJ documents indicate they'd be worth a couple of hundred million that include property, significant property assets in Moscow. I think the wife lives in a very elaborate apartment. He himself has said in the, back, in the past that that is the assets owned by his the family of a second wife are nothing to do with him. Uh, and Colin, is there any sense that Holy Town itself could be subject to these sanctions and could have its assets seized, for example? Well, I think it's certainly possible because when you look at what happened in Spain, a boat that was owned by a British Virgin Islands company that's owned by Chemizov's stepdaughter was seized by the authorities. So it seems 
to be uh, an, an exact parallel here. So Holy Town Limited is owned by a British Virgin Islands company that's owned by um, people very close to uh, Chemizov, a sectioned individual, a very close associate of, um, of Vladimir Putin and somebody who's come out in favour of the war, said it's justifiable and that Russia will eventually win. So it seems like an, a, you know, an, an absolute parallel. And uh, the, the Spanish authorities are defending their, their decision to seize the super yacht in, in Spain, even though it's not directly owned by Chemizov. And Colm, in, in your other investigations, any other Russian oligarchs or associates or family members of Russian oligarchs that you're aware of who have Irish interests? Not really, no. I mean, just all the ones that are in the, in the, in the papers already in sense of, uh, you know, the, the fundraising arms, uh, the funds that are based here and the, the, the aircraft leasing companies. And the landlord, I'm curious about the landlord in Beacon South Quarter. Um, obviously, I'm sure they read this uh, story and they've put two and two together. I wonder, are they having second thoughts about providing an address, uh, if you like, for this company? Well, again, I mean, I don't know because they haven't responded to us, but it is interesting that, the, you know, the, the company secretary, Kia Secretaries Limited, they made a filing last week saying that as of February last, they weren't working for this company. And now, this, you know, the same business essentially has submitted a filing saying that they're, they're no longer um, providing this company address. But somebody is providing an address in Fitzwilliam Square West, as matters stand. So I'm not entirely clear, clear who's doing that. Okay, Colin Keena of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. More than welcome. Cheers. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Pat Davitt and Colin Keena for joining me on the programme. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.